In 2016, there was a Pew Research study, and they polled people who had no religious affiliation. And they asked them a series of questions. The responses were kind of fascinating. 72% of those polled responded that they believed heaven existed. These were people with no religious affiliation. And then, even more so, I thought this was really interesting, 78% said they believed that if heaven did exist, that they were good enough to be there. I thought that was a little bit shocking and kind of confusing because that means that more people believe they would be in heaven than, than the percentage of people that actually believe heaven existed. Kind of like, well, I don't know. If it does exist, I guess I'm good enough to be there. It seems to be what they, they thought. Now, maybe that is not all that surprising after all because I think many people that we would talk to, maybe even ourselves, we, we would say, I'm a good person, right? I'm not perfect but I'm a pretty good person. But really, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by good? What's good enough? How do we know if we're good enough or not? These are questions that we're going to look at and which are at the heart of what I want to talk about today from our text in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. So if you would listen now for God's word to us today. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything that you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus again said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. They said to one another, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, 
This is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred, a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I think this is a pretty powerful text we have before us today. And this story actually appears in the Synoptic Gospels. It appears in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And if you put all three of these accounts together, what we find is this. We find um, different kind of um, details about this individual who comes to Jesus. From Mark, we find that he is wealthy. From Luke, we are told that he is a ruler or he is influential he is well regarded in his community. And in Matthew's gospel, we learn this. We learn that he is young. And so oftentimes we call this individual the rich, young ruler, right? We've got this wealthy, young, influential person. One commentator said he was probably good looking too, right? I mean, he had it all, right? He, uh, he was well respected in his community right? He made a good living, has a good life. People think well of him. But there was something missing for this man. So much so that he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do? I've got this good life, but I feel like I just don't have it all together in some way. Something's missing. Some years ago, I met a guy at the gym, Charleston, South Carolina. I met this guy at the gym. We were just acquaintances. It was kind of like this. He knew I was a pastor. He asked if we could meet, so we had lunch together. And he told me, you know, I make a good living. I've got a good life. My family's doing well, but I feel like something's missing. Very similar. Maybe some of you have felt that way before. Like something is just missing. Let's look back at the text, starting in verse 17. Jesus started on his way, and a man ran up to him. He fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good but God alone. And by the way, in this text, we have this language of eternal life or the kingdom of God. That, these are sort of synonymous in this text with salvation. That's what it's all talking about. So anyway, 
In the text, we see this man, he runs up to Jesus. It's like Jesus is on his way out of town, and this man waits till the last minute, and then he runs up to Jesus, and he falls on his knees before him. He kneels down before Jesus. Now, that is interesting. That is a posture of humility and of respect, right? So this man, he comes with the right posture. He comes to the right person. He actually comes with the right question. He's asking about eternal life, about salvation. He kneels down. You know, this is a man who probably is not accustomed to kneeling down before anyone. He's probably the kind of man that people actually kneel down before him. But here he is in this posture of humility before Jesus. And then he calls Jesus good. Jesus wants to know, why are you calling me good? Right? And I think what Jesus is getting at is this. Like, you're missing something in your understanding about goodness, right? Your understanding of goodness needs reframing. Do you know who you're talking to? And maybe, maybe in the same way, our understanding of goodness needs some reframing as well. Because I think most of us Think of goodness in this way. I would call it the, the morality ladder of goodness. And I want to illustrate this for us today on the, on the screen. The morality ladder of goodness. This man here, he's really, don't worry about him. But we have this ladder of goodness. And if you think about the top of the ladder, that's the best. That's the most good, right? Down at the bottom where this guy is, that's the worst, the least good. So think about it. Who would go at the top? For me, I think maybe we'd say God goes at the top. Yeah? And if, and if the bottom is the worst, who goes at the bottom? For me, I came up and thought, well, maybe Hitler would be a good representation at the bottom of this ladder. That's kind of what we're talking about. The most good and the most bad. Like a really bad person at the bottom of this thing. All right. Now, where would we put other people? I mean, like the Apostle Paul, for example. What do you think? Apostle Paul or someone like Mother Teresa, you know, someone who's a really good person, has done a lot of good, good things. Or maybe Mr. Rogers. Where would you? Oh, oh there we go. They're right there. They're pretty, they're pretty high up, right? I mean, they're not there with God, but these are good folk. Right? So they're pretty high up. They're not going to be close to Hitler. Now here's the question. Where would you put yourself? I mean, some of you are pretty good people, but I don't know if you're up there with Mother Teresa or God, right? A few of you I wonder about, but I don't think you're down there with Hitler either. Where would you put yourself? What's good enough? What's good enough? It's interesting because if you read the New Testament, you see that Paul says about himself, he said, he's the chief of sinners. So I don't even know if Paul would put himself up here. He might, be, he might put himself down here. And if Paul puts himself down here, where am I going to put myself? I'm no better than Paul. Where would you put yourself on this? How do we climb this ladder? How do you know what's good enough? 
Well, all of that say, I think this whole premise is wrong. I think we're thinking about it the wrong way. But I think this is how we tend to think about goodness. I think it's how they thought about goodness in Jesus' time. Jesus moves on in verse 19. He goes back to the Old Testament. And in verse 19 and 20, he says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not commit or give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your mother and your father. Now, any devout Jew would have understood the answer to the question that this man asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Any devout Jew would have known that. This man who came to Jesus, he was a Jewish man. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. So they would have known the Jewish answer to this question, which was keep the law, obey the commandments. That is what you must do. So it's kind of surprising. It's kind of surprising, right? Jesus quotes the law because we know, if you know the story of the Bible, you know the New Testament, the New Covenant. You know, well, we're not saved by keeping the law. We are saved by grace. So it's kind of interesting that Jesus brings up the law here, right? We're not saved by our moral obedience, Because we can never do it. We can never measure up. And so it's the grace of God and Jesus Christ which saves us. So why does Jesus quote from the Ten Commandments here? Well, I think he's getting at something else. He's digging at something else in this man's life, in this man's heart. He wants to reveal something to this man, something we need to talk about. Now now again, it's interesting. Jesus brings up the commandments here. And if you know the commandments, you know the commandments are broken into two tables. The first, the first four commandments are the vertical table. They speak about our relationship with God, our vertical relationship. This, the second or the, or the last six commandments, the second table of the law is the horizontal relationships, our relationships with other people, how we interact with other people. And that's what, that's what Jesus brings up here, are the last six. And, and even in the last six, he changes one of them. He changes, you shall not covet, to you shall not defraud. Now, the first four commandments, what's the first commandment? My hearing's so bad, I can't hear that. But I think you said, I think you said, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes? Yeah, that's the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3. So it speaks about God's, God's place of supremacy within our hearts. And then the next three are about our relationship with God vertically. And, and so... Jesus doesn't quote those. Jesus is saying something by what he says here, and he's saying something by what he doesn't say here. And he gives this example of the six horizontal commands, how we treat others, and the man responds, and the man says, I've done that. I've done it. And Jesus replaces that one command, you shall not covet. Now, to covet means to, it means to, to treasure something to give something ultimate value in your heart 
ultimate value even above the Lord. And Jesus leaves that off. Now, I think Jesus leaves that off because that's the man's issue, right? And those first four commandments, that's the man's issue. He's let something else take the place of supremacy in his heart. And and the man says he's kept all of these, and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, he says he's kept all of them. Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't, seems to accept that. He doesn't push back on that. Um, And I think the man is saying that, you know, throughout his life, even since he was a boy, he's diligently sought to keep these commandments. Doesn't mean he's, I don't think he's saying he was perfect or he never made a mistake, but he has, he has worked hard to keep these commandments. He's not exploited other people. He's been a good person. He's been charitable, right? He's treated people fairly, I think that's what he's saying. He's probably being honest there. Um, but, but Jesus is driving at something much deeper than these horizontal commandments, right? It's like the man is saying, I've done everything right. I've been successful. I've been respected. I'm morally upright. I'm faithful. Yet I just can't help but feel like something is missing. And what's missing? What's missing seems to be that vertical relationship, that true relationship with God. And you remember that ladder illustration. The ladder illustration is really false because it doesn't really go anywhere. You can climb and climb and climb. How do you ever know if you're good enough? How do you even know if you have arrived, right? That's what the guy's saying. I've done it. I've climbed the ladder. I've gotten to the top. But something's missing. Help me, Jesus, right? Help me. Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you felt like you've really striven to do good, to do right. But something's missing. Well, Jesus answers this man's question. He tells this man what he needs to do and what Jesus says to him completely undoes this man. Here comes the statement, verses 21 and 22. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. He looked at him and he loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. It's kind of a shocking statement, actually, what Jesus tells this man, because in Jesus' culture, it was believed that if you were wealthy, that you had really been blessed by God. You had received favor from God. That's what, that was how this was interpreted. Now, maybe that's less true today. Maybe someone who's very wealthy today, we, we have a little more skepticism about. Well, they gained their wealth, you know, on the backs of other people, or they were corrupt, or they got their wealth in an unfair way. I think we're probably a little less charitable about it today, but in Jesus' day, if someone was wealthy, it was believed, well, this person has really been blessed by God. This person must be a really good person because God has shown his favor to them. 
But Jesus tells this man, in relation to that, of all of his wealth, give it up. Give it up. It's kind of shocking in that day that the very symbol for this man of God's favor on him, Jesus says to give it up. And the man can't do it. It's as if you went to the doctor. You're like, I've got this thing going on. I've got this pain. I've got this problem. The doctor says, well, there's bad news. You've got this bad diagnosis. But there's good news. Like, we can do this thing. We can perform this surgery. We can give this medication to fix the problem. But then you say, well, I I can't do it. I don't want to do it. That's kind of like what this man is saying to Jesus. Here's the problem. Here's the answer to the problem. But no, I can't do it. Now, at a personal level, what's the one thing for you that you feel like you could not give up, that you would have a hard time letting go of, that you cannot live without that one thing? What would that be for you? Whatever that is, whatever that is, Jesus is saying, you've got to let go of that thing. You remember last week, the little children wanted to come to Jesus, and the disciples, they shooed them away. They didn't want to let the kids come to Jesus, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. We want the little kids to come, because the kids come with dependency, right? They come with a real neediness for Jesus, and he says, that's a good thing. We need to have that dependent, childlike attitude about our faith, right? And that's what he's telling this man. He's saying to the rich young ruler, you need to become like these children. You need to become dependent. You need to be without status. And Jesus says, are you willing to do that for me? Now, it sounds kind of harsh. It sounds kind of hard. But remember this, Jesus isn't doing this to be hard to the man. He's not doing this to be harsh to the man. In fact, the text says very plainly, Jesus is doing this. He saw the man and he loved the man. He's speaking the truth to the man because he loves him, right? He sees beyond the exterior. He sees the heart of the real issues going on for this man, He knows what is causing this restlessness. He knows what is causing for this man this sense of like something is missing. And Jesus loved him. And that word in the text, it's from the root for agape, unconditional love. Jesus loved this man in that way. I mean, you don't find many people that really love unconditionally but Jesus loved this man unconditionally and brothers and sisters he loves you and he loves me with that agape love he loves us enough to speak the truth to us he loves us enough to confront us when we need to be confronted he loves us enough to say the hard things to us because he loves us right And he loved this man so much that he was willing to say exactly what this man needed to hear. Have you ever felt that way? Like maybe the Lord was speaking something into your life, but you didn't really want to hear it. Ever felt that way? 
right? Or maybe it was just someone else, you know, a trusted friend, uh, a loved one who spoke something into your life and you did not really want to hear the truth they were speaking to you. But then later on, you realize like you really needed to hear what they were saying to you. You didn't like it at the time. You chafed against it at the time, but you really needed to hear that. And they loved you enough to speak the truth to you. So Jesus, he challenges this man at his point of need. And then it seems like he fails. Because the man doesn't go away angry, but he goes away sorrowful. He goes away grieving. Jesus touched, he identified that one thing that was standing between this man and a true relationship with God. He said, surrender this one thing, but the man could not do it, right? This is what you're missing. You give up this one thing, this, this will fix it, but the man could not do it. And, and for this man, that one thing happened to be his wealth and his status. Jesus says, you give that up and you will find what you are seeking. But the man felt like it was just too much. The scripture says he had great wealth and so... This was just too much for him to do. Now, some ways of looking at this, we could say the man wanted too much for himself. But I think really what it was was the man wanted too little for himself. C.S. Lewis speaks about this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. It's really profound. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires... Not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. This is in the slides, Rebecca, if you can hit the next one. Yeah, there you go. Infinite joy has been offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go and make mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. I think that's not the same one actually. We can't imagine what's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I don't know where I got that. Somehow that's not the right slide. You can, uh, you can forward to the next one, Rebecca. Yeah. C.S. Lewis says, he says, we want too little for ourselves, right? We're like a kid in the slum who's happy to play with mud when someone's offered us a, a holiday at the beach, but we don't even comprehend what that's like. We want too little for ourselves. And the man missed it. He should have desired more for himself. He should have desired Jesus above all. But Jesus, Jesus' call to this man felt impossible. He couldn't imagine his life giving up his possessions. That one thing, I asked you to think about that one thing. If you were asked to give it up, what would be really hard to give up? I mean, can you imagine that? 
life if you gave that one thing up. But I would, I would contend that with Jesus, you could do it. It would be okay. And it would be enough. Verse 23. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples how hard it is for, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. Jesus said it's harder or it's hard to enter the kingdom of God for a rich person. And the disciples are amazed by this. And the reason that they are amazed by this is because, as I mentioned before, to them, a rich person, a wealthy person, was a person in their culture who had really been favored and blessed by God. So if anybody could get into the kingdom of God, it would seem like that would be the person, right? And then Jesus says, it's really hard for that person to get into the kingdom of God. And so the disciples are like, oh boy, who then can be saved, right? We've got a problem here. If that person can't get in, that is so highly favored and blessed by God, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So today, I think, you know, culturally, the difference today we might say about the wealthy person, we might not say, oh, they're so favored and blessed. We might say, well, good, right? They've had a lot now. Good, they can't get in. Or they've gotten away with a lot. You know, they've, they've exploited a lot of people. Um, they don't deserve it. We, I think today, culturally, people might say that. But that was not the way this was viewed in Jesus' day. You know, the disciples were like, whoa, if this good guy, if this favored guy cannot get in, oh boy, we got a problem, right? Who can get in? And I think the point is this, is that on our own, nobody can get in. On our own, none of us is good enough to climb that ladder. If it's up to you, or if it's up to me, it is impossible. But what is impossible for me or what is impossible for you is not impossible for our great God. Amen? It is not impossible for him. And that's exactly the point. That is exactly our hope that Jesus intervenes. That's the heart of the gospel. What's impossible for us is not for him by his grace we are saved the scottish pastor sinclair ferguson writes this he says only when he gives us when only when god gives us new hearts to abandon everything else for christ will we be free from our personal forms of idolatry and will we yield to the principles of his kingdom only then that's simply to say, you can't do it. You can't climb it, and you can't earn it on your own. Now, in our culture, I think we all know, money opens doors, right? Money is pretty, I mean, if you've got some cash, it's pretty helpful in our culture. It can make you more comfortable. It can solve a lot of problems, right? 
it can open doors. There are undeniable advantages throughout history of being wealthy. But Jesus is saying here, there is one door that money cannot open. And in fact, it might be a hindrance to you with that one door. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying, and the Bible doesn't teach that it's a sin to be wealthy. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, that for some, your wealth and your possessions do have the power to take a place of supremacy in your life and to spiritually blind you from what you ultimately need, a relationship, a living, true relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And for you, it might not be money. It might be something else. But I think he's saying that there is a particular thing about wealth that can easily take that place in our heart, take Christ's place in our heart. Now, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Interesting statement there. Tim Keller calls this the great exchange. Keller says, Jesus is the true rich young ruler. Jesus was rich. And that's an understatement because the Bible says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. In fact, he is the owner of everything, right? You might think you're rich, but I mean, Jesus is like really rich. Everything belongs to him. Yet, he surrendered it all. He gave up his position and his power. He gave up his status and his wealth of heaven. He gave it up to come to earth, to become a man, to live a life of poverty and obscurity. Why? Well, so that through his grace, you might become rich. That's the great exchange. Now, this man, the rich young ruler, we're not told what happened to this man. We just know he went away sad. He goes off back to his life. We never hear about him again. He just kind of disappears from the pages of history and the pages of Scripture. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he ever repented. I'd kind of like to think that. You know, maybe, maybe he had a, a change of heart. I don't know if he repented. I don't know if he came around. I don't know if he ever pursued Jesus again or not. I don't know if he ever was willing to make that great exchange. What I do know is this. The offer is for you, and it's for me. Jesus looks at you, and he loves you. He looks at you right now and he loves you and he, and he wants to, because he loves you, he wants to pull that one thing out to touch that one point in your life that may be taking the ultimate place in your heart. That one thing that you might say, I can't live without this. 
He wants to take that one thing so that you can have the riches of his grace and his mercy and his love and his presence. So I think that's the question for us today. What's that one thing? And will you give it to Jesus? That's the message of the story of the rich young ruler. Remember, that's the gospel. Jesus said you must lose your life to find it. We're all building our lives on something. We're all seeking. We're all wanting to learn our true identity. We're all trying to find ourselves in some way or another. But Jesus says, give that to me. Give it to me. Build your life on me. And by my grace, you will find the riches of life and life abundant beyond comprehension. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that each of us have things that are competing for the allegiance of our own hearts. And we, like the rich young ruler, we come to you. And with with restless restless souls, souls, we do acknowledge that there's something we're missing. And so we pray this morning that you would forgive us for thinking that we could ever climb the ladder on our own. We thank you that you look at us and love us. Things to us. And we ask that you would give us your grace and that you would give us your courage to surrender to you. To give up whatever it might be that stands between us and you and to gain true life and abundant life. In your name we pray. Amen.